Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today I'm welcoming Hunter Farrell to the show. Hunter serves as the director of the World Mission Initiative of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, having served 30 years as Presbyterian Mission Coworker in Democratic Republic of Congo and Peru, Area Coordinator and Director of World Mission for Presbyterian Church, PCUSA. Farrell earned his doctorate in cultural anthropology at the Pontifical Catholic University in Peru and his MDiv in Cross-Cultural Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. Along with S.B. Kleep, he is the co-author of the book Freeing Congregational Mission, A Practical Vision for Companionship, Cultural Humility, and Co-Development. Farrell is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and married to Ruth Brand Farrell, with whom he raised three children, now grown. So let's welcome Hunter to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Hunter Farrell. Thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for the invitation um, because I've done, you know, engaged in mission most of my life. And so I, I think about it a lot and pray about it a lot and um, engage in it. So this is this is exciting conversation for me. Awesome. Uh, share, if you would, before we get started, what your faith journey looked like, kind of what it looked like coming to the faith, what it looks like today, and anything in between you want us to talk about. Yeah. Well, good. Thanks. I appreciate the question. Um, I was raised in the church, so baptized as a child and and raised um, in a pretty faithful household. Folks, you know, struggling to follow in the way of Jesus. Um, In my teenage years, uh, my family was, you know, feeling some stress. There was some uh, fracturing going on in the family. And my way of reacting to that was a bit of rebelliousness. Mm -hmm. I left the church for about five years, um, an elder in the church kind of kept tabs on me, uh, mm. didn't, didn't follow too close, but just was aware and would have coffee with me every once in a while and invited me uh, when I was about 21. He said, I see that you've given up on the church in North America. I get that. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'd, like to, you know, I'd like to introduce you to the church in Africa. And mm. so he set it up with our denomination to, um, I spent a year at age 22 as a volunteer in what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And to say it was a life-changing experience uh, would sell it short. It um, profoundly challenged the way that I understood my life, uh, my faith, my relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, It was just such a gift in so many ways. So it was really Congolese Christians who drew me Hmm. back into the church um, in some pretty profound ways. And so this book is really just kind of in keeping with that sense of a an obligation that I have to, to, to share back some of those stories and, um, and, uh, really say thank you to, um, not just Congolese Christians, but, but places, people in many different places yeah. who over the years have, um, shepherded me and, uh, sort of pointed me back towards Jesus. Hmm. I don't know if you, I'm jumping in here already. I don't, uh, I'm just kind of curious, like you, you mentioned that you'd given up on the church in North America. 
Like, what was it that caused you to want to give up on them? And have you been like, has it been reason to take them back? If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And it, again, you're, you're picking up on the 16 year old self-righteousness that I think was right. very much a part of right. my, my defense mechanism. I can't handle the, the chaos of the world. And so I'm going to judge it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think um, for myself, there were two parts of my Christian experience early on. I grew up in a well-to-do community uh, in Dallas, um, pretty monocultural. Uh, my high school class, a public high school, but it was 100% white. Um, mm. And so those issues of, of uh, poverty, um, of equity, of uh, racial justice were pretty big in my teen years. Uh, the busing crisis was happening in, sure. in Dallas, Texas of those years. Um, and I just sort of watched it happening around and I, I didn't see the church as being able to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, to, to mm-hmm. work for justice and to be engaged in reconciliation. And that to me as a, you know, again, a rather self-righteous 16 year old, it felt like the church had to be about that. Um, and I didn't see the, the church that I had experienced resembling very much the church that I read about in the new Testament. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, not to be too hard on the 16-year-old there, but uh, yeah. there's a little little self-righteousness in that. But um, the beautiful kind of trajectory of this book, I had worked overseas. I mean, I, I was ordained as a minister in, nine, uh, gosh, 30 years ago wow. and have never pastored a church in the U.S. I've mm-hmm. always worked overseas. I worked uh, in Democratic Republic of Congo. I worked in Peru for 10 years. I worked with the mission agency of the Presbyterian Church, so was always engaged in global mission. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say I was still pretty hard on the U.S. church in the early years, in, in those early professional years. What writing this book helped me to realize is um, we're all in this together. And mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no room, really, for uh, folks sitting to the side and, and judging the rest of the church um, because God doesn't call lone rangers. There's no, I don't think God calls us as individuals into God's mission in the world, mm-hmm. uh, but rather God calls us as God's people um, to participate joyfully, graciously um, in all that God is doing in the world. And that, that changes the game. So um, there was a point, uh, one of the editors, the, uh, the chief editor, I guess, of uh, InterVarsity Press that published the book, um, wrote back his very first comment on the, the script, you know, the, the manuscript that I'd written. He said, tell me about the anger. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, what anger, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Says the, the guy to his therapist, what anger? Um, and so I, I, I that's put a, a, a hold on like for the next six months, I just went deep and said, what, what is that about? Why am I, why am I being so judgmental? towards folks engaged in short-term mission, towards mm-hmm. folks who want to sponsor a child, towards folks. And it, it allowed that that question, really well-timed question, uh, allowed me to do some of the deep work um, and really mm-hmm. take it to the Lord and ask the question, what is this? Um, what I found was um, I was being you know, judgmental towards others because I was being that way towards myself. Um, and to release that to God, whose mission it is in the first place, uh, allows me uh, to participate with a lot more grace 
uh, than I would otherwise. So yeah, the, even the writing of the book has been a really uh, healing process for me that I'm really grateful for. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Um, we're not even into the main conversation yet, and already some good <laughs> conversation here, some good peats. Um, yeah. Share, if you would, about a spiritual practice that's been meaningful for you. We don't know each other, uh, Lauren, but I am about as active, activist, uh, other-centered. I'm very um, uh, extroverted. Mm-hmm. I, I engage with people. Um, I can go deep with a stranger very quickly. Um, so all that are kind of descriptors of me. The most important spiritual practice for the last really 20 years, and it took me a while to find it, uh, was you know, specifically journaling. And related to that, just the, 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 the discipline of reflection, because I was kind of that hyperactive kid, you know, always distracted, jumping into the next conversation, moving on. And uh, the gift of reflection is at the end of a day, just to stop and say, where did I see God in this day? Um, and what is God calling me to do as I greet the next day? Mm-hmm. And just kind of that two uh, two movement uh, response to God's grace in the day has been really important to me um, to stop and begin because as we for, for myself as I've disciplined myself to see God's hand today I get up tomorrow anticipating where will I see God in action mm-hmm. um, and that has been a really rich space for me so um, I think it's that in general, that, that kind of that discipline of reflection and specifically the, the spiritual practice of, of journaling has been really important to me. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, sounds like you're comfortable sharing with that, sharing your stuff, but I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had uh, Hunter on to talk about his book that he's already hinted at, Freeing Congregational Mission, A Practical Vision for Companionship, Cultural Humility, and Co-Development. And you've kind of teased out a little bit, talked a little bit about it, but just maybe talk about how the book came to be. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, so over the years, you know, 30 years of working uh, in uh, global and local mission, um, I became painfully aware of the contradictions, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. the, the, the hopes and aspirations that we have as congregations in North America, um, uh, struggling and wanting, desiring to follow God into the neighborhood, to cross lines of human difference, uh, to love our neighbor. Um, that, that's really difficult. One of the things that I don't think we, we do very well is uh, um, kind of open our eyes to the, the past, to look mm-hmm. at mission history um, that has done so many amazing things. If we look at just the last 500 years, the European missionary movement uh, it, it, it ended diseases, it advanced the role of women, it uh, uh, freed whole groups of people, uh, saved languages that would have disappeared over time. I mean, just the number of, of lives saved, of people who came to Jesus Christ as a result of that movement, mm-hmm. uh, the growth of church and, and hospitals and educational systems. I mean, it's just, it's hard to calculate. At the same time, there's a, an underside to mission history um, that I think has seeped into the water that we drink as we think and talk and engage in mission today. And that's the kind of the unexamined colonial legacy uh, that is yeah. just omnipresent, uh, I find it, in the ways that we talk about mission, the way we conceptualize it, the way we engage in it. 
If you look at, um, I did, I've done some research uh, with a colleague, Bala Kalep, my co-author. He and I, for the last six years, have been uh, researching a group of 1,200 congregational mission leaders that come from evangelical, mainline Protestant, and Catholic parishes or congregations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as we talked with them, we became painfully aware of their struggle to deal with this colonial legacy on the one hand, um, mm-hmm. and to help folks get a sense of how power has become part and parcel of the way that we engage in mission. So we set up relationships around the world where we we deal the cards, we bring yeah. the goods, we yeah. provide almost all the materials, um, and oftentimes pay the whole freight. We we, we pay everything, our, our travel and 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 their uh, their expenses in ways that don't uh, honor the the place that God has given them as uh, co-participants in God's mission with us mm-hmm. and with God. Um, and so I think that's a real, a real challenge. So that, that whole colonial legacy that hasn't really been looked at very much, I don't think by, by churches in North America, I think that's a, that's a challenge. The twin uh, side, the other side of the, of this crisis that I believe we're facing has to do with what I call selfie mission. Yeah. And, and I don't think, I don't think our grandparents would recognize much of what we do in mission today as the mission of Jesus Christ. And I say that with a lot of love and recognizing mm-hmm. myself in that right. because um, so many folks, when churches talk today about uh, mission, how they engage in mission, oftentimes they're talking about personal transformation. Uh, this mm-hmm. changed our church. We engage in mission because it draws youth in. It, mm-hmm. it does all these things for our church. And in fact, uh, as our grandparents would have testified, uh, you know, mission is all that we do for people outside the circle, outside yeah. the, 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 the boundary lines that we have drawn between church and community. So, yeah, I, I, I do think those are kind of, kind of this twin crises that we face, the colonial mission and that selfie mission. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we talk more about, in the book, you kind of talk about three eras of Christian mission. Why don't you describe those a little bit for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to kind of divide church history, 2,000 years, right, of, of Christian history, to divide that up in three parts. If we think of the first 500 years, more the early church, the patristics or the early, early church fathers, um, the, the missionary was a foreigner, right? This was the, the 12 apostles who flee persecution in Jerusalem and fan out across the known world from Spain across to India by some legend, right? Uh, mm-hmm, Mark mm-hmm. to Egypt, Thomas to India, etc. As they go there, they speak the local language with an accent. They don't have any kinship who can provide social covering for them. They're disempowered in that local space. And so the missionary comes from the bottom, right? Comes from below. And the flow of mission is from the bottom up. That changes in the imperial period between roughly AD 500 and 1500, um, when it's when it is the you know imperial armies that um, uh, as they conquer different parts of Europe send in chaplains to catechize and to mm-hmm. Christianize uh, the heathens the foreigners right right and so that's that changes the power dynamic we see that even more sharply beginning in 1500 the what we call the European colonial period and that introduces uh, the missionary as occupying. Uh, an ambivalent position. They're representatives of Jesus Christ, to be sure, but they also represent the colonial logic. 
which is we have the right to your raw materials. We have the Mm -hmm. right, in the case of Africa, we have the right to your bodies Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of enslavement. Um, All kinds of issues there that really confuse uh, the ministry or the witness uh, to Jesus Christ in, in that period. So one of the challenges, I think, to us today is how do we reverse that flow of mission to get away from that power position uh, we we sit, tend to step to the table and sit at the head of the table naturally. That's just where people want to see, seat us, right? Um, where we walk into a global context and people walk us to the front, sit in the front seat. You, would you preach today, please? Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. And many of us have been in that in that situation. Um, but I think mission in the way of Jesus Christ invites us into a different space uh, to take the power dynamic very seriously and to seek out spaces of mutuality. Uh, spaces of companionship is how we frame it in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do we create a table where we're breaking bread together? A space of shared uh, vulnerability where, you know, if I guess Putin and Biden aren't going to have lunch together anytime soon, right? right? Because eating together involves a certain vulnerability. I might get spinach between my teeth and you right. as my friend say, hey, Hunter, you, you got something caught right here, right? Yeah. But that's not going to happen on the world stage between, you know, adversaries. So trying to create a space where we can um, uh, dare to accompany our neighbor across lines of difference in the way of Jesus Christ, I think can be really powerful and transformative on both sides of the line. So that's that's the model that we, we de- develop in the book, kind of a theology of companionship. Yeah, you, you have several things I want to touch on and go back to. So let me start here, perhaps. Um, there's a key question you write in the book. And I think you've just kind of hinted at it already of whose mission is it anyway? Um, you want to talk more about that key question? Yeah. Um, I think as I look at my own efforts, and so a lot of the book is sort of telling the stories on myself, mm-hmm. um, but I think I'm not alone in uh, North American uh, Christianity. I think many of us struggle uh, as we step into the space of mission like that, um, the global church example that I gave, uh, mm-hmm. we're immediately given the first word and the last word. We're invited to preach. In fact, you can go on a global mission experience. You can go to a local community experience and never actually listen or be allowed to hear what other people think. Hmm. Because people have constantly said, tell us what you think. You're the expert. You're coming in from outside. Yeah. Um, and I think that... Um, one of the, the challenges is we're allowed, again, with this colonial background, we're allowed to mistake whose mission it is. That, in fact, it's not God's mission from first to last, as Paul reminds us, but rather um, we're allowed to assume that it's our mission. Hmm. And, in fact, this is uh, the church doesn't have a mission, as missional theologians discovered long ago. Uh, but rather God has a mission and graciously invites the church to join God in that mission. So I think we get our you know cart before the horse right. by putting ourselves or the church in front of God's mission. When in fact, I mean, to me, God's mission is like a trap door. You walk over it and you think you know what's going on. You <laughs> think you're in charge. You think you're in control. And then the door opens and you're allowed to fall into the arms of people not your own who graciously catch catch you and allow you to see um, from a different perspective uh, your own faith and your own world. Uh, I think that can be really powerful. And I, 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 
I desire that. I, I, I covet that for, for uh, Christian churches. Sometimes we set up mission in such a controlled manner mm-hmm. that th- there are very few variables. Now we laugh, oh, we didn't get hot water or we, we didn't right. get the, you know, the, the comforts that we had hoped for. Um, but oftentimes down to the, you know, this pretty precise planning, we don't allow any space for the spirit to move and to surprise us with what God has in store for us in that place. So I think the book is is just an invitation to to look beyond the the good planning, which is important, um, but to be ready to allow for the spirit to move and to to push us into a direction that we would not have anticipated. You know, it's interesting. I've had conversations with other guests. Um, you you made your point about the kind of that unexamined colonialist history, how it seeps into the waters. I think you said something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had conversations with other guests kind of about how in North American churches, it's kind of that similar dynamic of the white people um, are kind of like, we kind of just assume, I'm going to, uh, we kind of just assume myself identifying as a white person, like we have all the answers. And when we're going into the community of color, communities of color, it's kind of like that same thing rather than uh, flipping the dynamic and learning from uh, people of color and, and communities of color and churches of color about how to do church ourselves rather than, again, thinking we have all the answers. And yeah, I, I, I see that uh, time and time again. And I think, uh, I think most of our uh, siblings of color could provide a litany of uh, mm-hmm. uh, just a long list of, of experiences that they've had. Um, what I do think, I mean, that's helpful to me is to, to recognize that there is a, uh, a profound, I, I think it's a heartfelt invitation from God to join God in mission. And as we see, I, we try to develop in the chapter, looking at a theology of companionship, mm-hmm. that companionship always includes an attention, uh, a particular attention to those who are marginalized. And it needs to include the not just the, the the presence, the participation, but the leadership of those who are marginalized, because they will necessarily see a bit more like Jesus because of that position of power. Hmm. Um, I think it does allow us to um, to to uh, to leave that that space of power to, to at least recognize that we stand in it. I don't know that we can we actually leave it. Yeah, uh, but we can we can sort of acknowledge it. And it changes the dynamic immediately around the circle as we just name that power that we have because of this colonial legacy. I, I, I laugh and, and there was no one I was closer to growing up than my grandmother. Um, mm-hmm. And my grandmother had received from her four, forebears all the racist language and assumptions that those generations were characterized by. Mm-hmm. And so she tried to protect me in Dallas, Texas. Uh, in the years that I was growing up, uh, from people who were different from us, uh, mm-hmm. right? And so she transmitted a lot of that, of those scripts, if you will. Right. And I, at age 25, was you know walking around in Washington, D.C. I had a, got, a, got a job in Washington, D.C. And all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, I've carried these scripts with me faithfully ever since I sat on my grandmother's knee. Hmm. At what point am I going to take those out of the backpack Look at those and say, these are scripts that I'd like to carry. These faithfully reflect what Jesus wants me to do. And these others really don't. Now, my grandmother was a great Christian in many ways. 
And I have to say, these are scripts that I'm not going to be carrying because they yeah. don't reflect uh, Jesus and Jesus' uh, love for the world. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a, it's a major issue in our relationships uh, across the racial lines that we've drawn in this country. And it's particularly painful in these, in these years. Yeah, so you're hinting, or I'm, I'm, I'm hearing something that you write about in the book uh, about poorly placed foundational stones. You know, you just talked about how the kind of things that have been given to you in your backpack didn't quite serve you well. What do you think are some of these poorly placed foundational stones that I'm, I'm going to assume it's come from the largely white North American Christian church? Yeah, and so I write as a as a, a cis white male, that, that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I've generally been far from the poverty line. I've never missed a meal in my life uh, through circumstances beyond my control, right? Mm-hmm. And so that puts me in a particular uh, demographic uh, yeah. and clearly uh, a small minority of the world population, right? Right. So as I as a you know a Christian of the one percent church, right? I'm 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 part of that. Uh, if you look across the global church, the U.S. church uh, represents you know we're we're present in that the one percent of the. Um, uh, uh, wealthiest uh, of, of the churches across the across the world, that puts a particular burden on me. I need to be particularly aware, I think, of of the power and privilege that I move through the world with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mission gives us a, an incredible gift that is uh, almost untapped. As I look at denominations from uh, evangelical to Catholic to uh, mainline Protestant. So much work to address racial inequity in our country has happened um, almost kind of this battering ram technique where we try to batter down the front door of people's hearts, right, and Mm -hmm. convince Mm -hmm. them of the error of their ways. I've seen it in institutions. I've seen it in um, uh, uh, churches. Um, I think mission opens up, uh, in a sense, the kitchen door, a side Mm. door where we can actually sit down and have a cup of coffee, and get to know each other and share a meal. And it's in that space of shared vulnerability, of, of companionship in God's mission, where we begin to untangle some of the issues of power and racial injustice and racial inequity that is such a part of the North American experience. So if a church is saying, you know, when a church says, oh, finances are tight, we're going to do less mission this year, mm-hmm. I would just pray for them. Uh, you know, cast your bread on the waters. This may be the year that you need to to open up into more engagement, uh, whether that's at the soup kitchen down the street or a clothes closet um, or global mission engagement, because that can be a space where God will uh, just bust open the doors of the church uh, to include uh, a greater variety of the people that God's called to be uh, part of God's work. Yeah. So I'm curious if I can ask perhaps kind of a hard question, but I mean, I think probably in the last like six to nine months and probably what drew me to the book is I've seen so much conversation on social media, just kind of um, just completely writing off global mission work, especially from, from the church Christian church context. Now, I think one of the things that I appreciated the book was I, I thought was a, a nuanced approach that kind of acknowledged the bad, uh, but also tried to find some good, which is certainly what I'm hearing from you already. What do you say to those who are, who are, who are, again, are kind of like, you know, it's all just imperial colonialist 
stuff like because obviously you're acknowledging um that past but i, I guess is the question like is there enough good to be salvaged from that bad hmm. Hmm. wow yeah and you're asking a question almost yeah um it's it's a god question right yeah. um and and if god if, you know in the in the last 500 years to see all of and i've i've read through the spanish chronicles to see the horrendous things that happen i mean the worst of the worst in the name of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. the things that, that that were perpetrated upon whole groups of people, right. um, just uh, you know, from genocide to enslavement of, of, of more than ten, more than twelve million people, all that together, and God still used that for blessing for many people, and so that just stops me cold, and I say, what the heck? This is a God who can take the darkest desires. <sighs> Of human of, of human existence, and and transform those into blessing. Because when you, I try to do it in the book, I start listing all of the beautiful things that happened mm-hmm. out of this European missionary movement. That you know, I think most critical, most thinking people would would raise some questions about. You know, just given strategies and right. and the power dynamic and, and all the rest. Um, but to see that God can use even that for blessing, uh, powerful blessing in the world, and to, to spread the church, you know, to, uh, it, the church just exploded in growth uh, through, that, through that era. And it happened in part because of European missionaries, mm-hmm. but even more as Jehu Hansels and some other folks who've been looking at church history with new eyes, Jehu Hansels, who himself was a refugee from Sierra Leone, now teaching uh, at Emory in um, Atlanta, he looks at mission history and he sees the power of the local evangelist. Hmm. And if, to be sure, the European or Euro-American uh, missionary carried the good news in many senses, I'm, I'm just speaking of the, 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 this, this white legacy of mission sure. that we've described. Um, but that, that's all true. But the real growth of the church happens at the village level, happens mm-hmm. at the street corner level, where local converts to Christianity are translating not only linguistically but culturally what it means to follow Jesus in the local context, and that is, that is so powerful. So that that to me uh, just shows the ability of a gracious God to take our tattered witness mm-hmm. and make it a thing of beauty. So yeah, in the book Short Term Mission, everybody can throw rocks at short term right, mission. We right. all, all of us can can make beautiful and eloquent critiques of short term mission. But I would argue that's one of the thin places. That's a liminal space that our churches desperately need to be able to experience that space of vulnerability, that mm-hmm. space of falling into the arms of a people not our own. Um so yeah, I would uh, if if a church says, you know, we don't have time for mission, we don't want to sully our, you know, dirty our hands with, uh, you know, getting into imperialistic, colonialistic, racist mission. I say, yes, you're, you're looking at it full force. Now allow God to take that and make that a beautiful thing of transformation for your congregation. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you, let's, let's dive into short-term mission trips. Cause I think you spend a good portion of the book talking about that, kind of examining that phenomenon, I guess we might say, um, and I'm hearing different things, and I guess again, it kind of speaks to your nuanced approach here. Because um, you said earlier, you know, mission opens a side door, or at least as I wrote it down, mission opens a side door to people's hearts. Um, but you also, you know, you talk about how mission can really re-engage a church or faith community into 
um, responding to the Holy Spirit, but also you, you talked about the selfie mission and how short-term mission trips can be this kind of self-aggrandizing uh, experience. It's really not uh, others-focused at all. Mm-hmm. How do we find a, a balance? Because um, again, if I'm hearing you right, you're not wanting to throw it all out completely. You're you're trying to find a healthy way. Can so talk more about like how how a church or, or faith community can can go on a short term mission trip um, that's a benefits them and helps them grow spiritually, but also helps a, a another community. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's a critical question you're asking. I really appreciate this, Lauren. Um, I talk about the concept of slow mission in mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. It just encouraging um, uh, one of the questions that you and I were talking about uh, uh, earlier in the correspondence um, was uh, kind of simple advice for a pastor or a leader who's right. thinking about you know thinking about a trip or planning a trip. Um, and there's a lot of evidence. Uh, um, a researcher at um, Calvin University, um, Verbeek, uh, talks. He does a study and shows that. The typical short-term mission trip without adequate orientation, daily reflection, and follow-up will actually increase ethnocentricity Hmm. among participants. Wow. Um, And so ethnocentricity, so that means my culture, my way of doing things, and, you know, my straight white male ways of doing things uh, are the better way. And that, that's... That's a disease. That's a virus that's gone through the church, yeah. you know, all, all in all different ways. And so, to be able to engage in activities when you you've got people. I mean, look at short term mission. You have people in your congregation who are willing to put money down so that they can have this experience. To me, that's a leading of the spirit. That's an open door mm-hmm. that says. I'm willing to try something new. I'm willing mm-hmm. to step out in faith. Um, and for people who open their hearts in that way, I think God is faithful um, to show them not perhaps not what they anticipated seeing, mm-hmm. but something uh, much more uh, much more powerful and and beyond their even their wildest imagination. Um, I've seen it. I, I was I worked in Peru for ten years and received. Lots of mission groups, almost monthly, there were groups coming, um, and uh, a big part of the work that I did was to uh, work with Peruvian partners in receiving uh, different groups, and I did a lot of translating in those days. Um, What sticks out to me is um, when you have a leader who is willing to ask some hard questions, Hmm. uh, most of us are are, are a little too comfortable, I would argue, with that missionary halo, right? It just... Hmm. As we're engaged in mission, it just feels good, and yeah. so we don't ask some of those harder questions. But getting up each morning, you know, and asking the question, "Where was God in yesterday's activities, mm-hmm. and how did I use the power that was given to me yesterday? Hmm. How did I how did I move in that space of power and privilege that so many people in this context were giving to me? They gave me the best seat. They gave me the you know, the, the best cut of meat. They gave me, you know, a chance to speak. They asked my opinion. How many times did I ask someone else hmm. their opinion? I mean, to, to do that reality check uh, around issues of power, I think is really important. So part of the book, um, we, we've created this book. Um, we really focused it on the needs of leaders and local congregations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to provide them with the tools they needed as they lead their congregation in short-term mission trip. 
uh, with through a, a thorny conversation of do we engage in child sponsorship or support yeah. for an orphanage or yeah. how do we you know uh, send funds to a, a local or a, a global um, uh, need that we per- that we perceive um, in all those conversations um, we've tried to you know provide this book with we have in its uh, eight tools uh, mm-hmm. to help uh, congregational mission leaders and we provide. You know, one of the tools is, in fact, um, uh, the daily reflection guide that a short-term mission leader can just pick up and use. If they do it on that daily reflection practice, um, it will help them to avoid that kind of falling into the rut of increasing ethnocentricity. Our way is the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, and even beyond that, just a sense of we are benefactors. We are the give- we're the doers of mission. These folks are passively receiving mm. our mission that mm-hmm. we're doing to them. Mm. When in fact, that's, you know, that's, that's such a non-biblical way to see right. what's, what's going on in that space, right? It, it's really God inviting all of us, you know, some folks who have more money in their pockets, some folks who have less, some folks who have deep spiritual wisdom, some folks who have less, some folks who have all kinds of uh, 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 special needs and special abilities. Um, it just strikes me that God is drawing us together for a purpose. And I, it's sort of, I think it's repeated in uh, so many times in the book of Colossians that, that God's purpose is to draw all things together in Jesus Christ. And I think part of the intention is in mission, God draws us together with people who we would not have considered to be even friends, much less siblings in Christ. Yeah. Um, so I think it does offer a, a wonderful space for uh, the local leader who's willing to to do it mindfully and, and engage in what we call slow mission to ask some of these deeper questions that we try to provide in the book. I think that slow mission really is a key point because I'm just thinking of, I think in the book you you quote like one mission leader who like says something about feeling like a cruise trip cruise trip director or something if I remember mm. or like a you know party trip director and just like. Again, I think the temptation is to like program, program, program. Mm. And if you're not programming as much, you're going to leave space for kind of that reflection. I can imagine. Right. Right. And what if, you know, what if we under programmed? And I'm, I, I, my insecurities as a teacher at, at right. Pittsburgh Seminary come out. I want to fill that class. I mean, my, I, I bring three times more material mm-hmm. than I could possibly share. And oftentimes can choke out the spirit hmm. from moving in that space of pause, of silence, of uncertainty on my part. And a student steps into a whole new role and says, could it be this? Hmm. And suddenly it's a whole new conversation yeah. for which I am deeply grateful, but I have to open up that space because of yeah. the power dynamic in the classroom. I think it's oftentimes similar, um, particularly for mission trip leaders they may not recognize. We tend to, I think, in that interview I had with that particular mission leader, I recall the, the painfulness. Hmm. And she saw herself as completely disempowered. She was kind of standing between church yeah. uh, leadership that was saying, you know, keep the campers happy. <laughs> and um, yeah, and she was trying to be faithful to what she understood to be this, this radical, life-changing mission experience. Yeah. Um, I do think... Uh, Mission opens the door to us to um, move beyond the mere purchase of an experience um, and to see ourselves in relationship with our neighbor in some radical ways. Um, 
so that's 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 my my my, my hope uh, in in the writing of this book. Well, again, the book is "Freeing Congregational Mission: A Practical Vision for Companionship, Cultural Humility, and Co-Development." Uh, Hunter, I want to ask you a million more questions, but we don't have time. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Hunter Farrell and. Uh, Hunter, uh, again, I'm biting my tongue here, but let's move on to these closing questions. Uh, you can take these, I tell folks, as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're a pope for a day, what does that day look like? What would you want to do? That kind of thing. Wow. You know, I can be honest. No one's ever asked me this question <laughs> before. Um, yeah. Um, if I were pope for a day, I think I would want to, I mean, um, Pope Francis is a, a, a figure whom I admire greatly. Um, mm-hmm. And I've worked a lot of years in Catholic countries um, where the primary um, shape of Christianity is strongly influenced by the Catholic tradition, especially Latin America, which was steeped in Latin America, in, in Catholic tradition. And that was such a big part of the colonial experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Francis strikes me as someone who, uh, genuinely uh, tries to engage in mission in the way of Jesus Christ. And so a deep sensitivity to the power dynamics hmm. uh, as Francis sort of pushes beyond the crowd. The security guys must be going wild. He moves into the crowd and embraces the child who appears to have special needs. Um, I, I think I would try to, I would try to take a page out of Francis's book. Um, and uh, follow him. He's sort of a, a visual representation that mm-hmm, helps me mm-hmm. to see more deeply into the ministry of Jesus. Um, so yeah, I would. Uh, I think I would read. Uh, there's actually a couple of auto, a couple of biographies that have come out on Francis recently. I think I'd immerse myself in that and and prepare for my day, <laughs> my day as Pope. Good. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet. Or bring back to life. Do you know who fascinates me um, is Bartolomé de las Casas. He is a Dominican priest. He, he's born towards the end of the 15th century. He goes uh, early in his career, before he becomes a priest, in fact. He travels from Spain, his native Spain. He travels to the, the island of Hispaniola, right? Mm-hmm. So the Dominican Republic, Haiti. Um, and there he sees the decimation of the native population of mm-hmm. that island, right? Um, so there's like thousands of Spaniards, religious, non-religious, priests, missionaries, and mercenaries, right? They're all experiencing the same thing. But what is it about Bartolomé de las Casas that he reads the signs of the times, he looks at scripture, and he asks uh, poignant and, and urgent theological questions and challenges the church. He challenges the the, the governor of mm-hmm. of Hispaniola. He preaches sermons against them. He travels back to Spain and engages in theological debate with the the, the, the crown theologian at that time, Torquemada. It's just amazing to me. And I think, would that I had the courage mm. to be. I mean, what are the signs of the times happening around us yeah. in, in a, an era of Christian nationalism? What am I doing? To, to name those, to lift those up, and to begin to address them prayerfully, respectfully, but uh, powerfully, you know, with that, with a, a sense of, 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 of strength and, and conviction. Uh, I would love to spend a day with uh, Bartolomé de las Casas and see 
you know, what was it like in the, the dark moments mm-hmm. as he struggled against, I mean, talk about macro forces. It was just, it was like a tidal wave. What yeah. could he do against it? Yeah. And yet he was faithful throughout, um, after he had his kind of conversion experience, um, he, he never varied from that. And I just, um, I really, I admire that. So I'd, I'd be fascinated by a, some time with uh, Bartolome de las Casas. Well, speaking of, you mentioned sign of the times. Um, what do you think history, history will remember from our current place in time? Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, technology change, communication, uh, the climate crisis, there, there's so much going on. Um, so here, this is, this is somewhat a prediction and a bit more of a prayer. Sure. One of the things that I see happening since like 1974, Lausanne covenant gathering, um, in Lausanne, 1974, you see evangelicals take a step closer to mainline Protestants and Catholics. There was a reticence on the part of evangelicals to name, um, the social and, um, uh, physical manifestations of being in Christ. Hmm. Uh, and I, and, and you see in Lausanne, uh, just a major step as, uh, Rene Padilla of, uh, Ecuador and who lived in Argentina most of his life, um, Samuel Escobar from Peru and other evangelical Latin Americans mm-hmm. who come forward and say, and then they develop this concept of integral mission or hmm. holistic mission. And, and they made a case for, we evangelicals need to get on board. We need to move towards uh, the fully orbed witness of uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And so there, I think Samuel Escobar said, you know, if all things are not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we're not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so I, I just, I see my, you know, hope, prediction, and a prayer, probably more prayer than anything, mm-hmm. is that we'll see a continuation. I, I've seen more movement on the evangelical side uh, mm-hmm. about getting serious about issues of human trafficking, about issues of uh, 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 religious persecution, a variety of different social issues. And I welcome that. I'm curious to see if in a, uh, uh, I'm from the mainline Protestant uh, family, and I'm curious to see if, if, if my folks on our side of the line are willing to take a step towards a, a, a more open sharing of faith. Hmm. In, in classes at Pittsburgh Seminary, mm-hmm. I'll ask students to to share their testimony, mm-hmm. and it makes most students profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> so I, I've shifted and asked, "Can you share the mighty works of God in your life? Yeah, tell me of an yeah. incident or a chapter or a you know what you've learned from that." And students then share. I mean, they're 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 testifying. Hmm. They have so much to share because they've seen the mighty acts of God. I wouldn't be here, they say, hmm. if it weren't for. And then they they share the particular testimony. So I, I think there are ways. Sometimes we get caught up in the secularized language of our times, mm-hmm. and I think it's time for us in the mainline uh, family to mainline Protestant family uh, to reflect on the, the the spiritual components of of, of our faith that I, I think we sometimes set aside. Well, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate your time and uh, your input here. Uh, share, if you would, how people can connect with you, you know, get a copy of the book, those kind of things. Sure. Yeah. Easiest way is to go to freeingmission.com. Um, so first word, you know, freeingmission.com. And they, they can go, they can, uh, we'll send them to five different places where they can get books from Amazon to local bookstores mm-hmm. to 
uh, InterVarsity Press itself. So, yeah, and would welcome folks. We're encouraging folks to read the book and then gather a group of people to get in what we call a mission leader circle. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, we got, there's dozens of them going on around the country now where they're gathering together and then working through uh, the different study questions at the end of every chapter. Um, and I'm going to do a group actually uh, tomorrow morning, a uh, group of folks who are gathering for that. So, yeah, I think it helps us to sort of digest and again, take that slow mission approach to engaging in some of the 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 parts of that book. Yeah, that might be the key word for this episode, slow mission. So I love it. Uh, appreciate again your time. Always leave folks with a word of peace. Uh, so may God's peace be with you. Amen. Thank you for that. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romick-Levitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.